the world works in certain ways until a new great idea comes along and changes everything. We need a name. We. We live. We dream. We work. I'm Travis Kalanick, and I will never back down from a fight. And if no one wants to believe in me, I'll make them believe by being undeniable. These kids don't overthink. They don't get bogged down about the way things have always been done. They want to change things now. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Downfall of the Startups. I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. I'm here today with Julie Miller, a senior features writer for VF. Hello, Julie. Hi, I'm excited to be here. We're very excited to have you uh, and to get started on this uh, new series. Uh, Julie is just one of the VF colleagues who will be joining me throughout this season of Still Watching. Uh, we're also going to feature interviews with the talent who, in front of and behind the camera, uh, bring what we're watching to life. Um, and just a bit of a programming kind of housekeeping note, uh, people who've listened to Still Watching in the past uh, will notice something different about this season. Uh, instead of covering one season of a show from premiere to finale, uh, we're instead going to cover three series as they air or stream. I mean, it's a variety. We have one thing airing on cable, two things on streaming, so... Uh, but for whatever reason, the uh, TV gods have blessed us with a trio of new series about the rises and falls of startup entrepreneurs. There's Showtime Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber, about Travis Kalanick's eventual ouster from the company he founded, Hulu's The Dropout, about disgraced Theranos founder and now convicted felon Elizabeth Holmes, and later this month, Apple's We Crashed, about Adam Newman and the disaster that was the IPO of WeWork. Uh, we'll get to We Crashed in a couple of weeks because it hasn't premiered yet, but the first episode of Super Pumped premiered on Sunday on Showtime, and the first three installments of The Dropout have just dropped on Hulu. The, and we'll be covering all four of those episodes on this episode today. As you watch along with us, please send us questions, comments, corrections, etc. to stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, especially if there's anyone out there who knows more about tech entrepreneurship and startup entrepreneurship than I do, because... Uh, I don't know that much. I, th I think I'm going to know a lot more by the end of these shows. But for the time being, if you have any added insight, please do email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Later on in this episode, uh, I'll have an interview, interview I did with dropout showrunner Elizabeth Merriweather. But first, uh, Julie, I, I want to ask you a big question about all three of these shows, sort of the thesis statement of doing this podcast at all. So no <laughs> pressure. Uh, but why do we care about startup disasters so much? I think it has to do with the scale of them. We love watching people rise and fall. And here we're dealing with youngish um, type people who are rising and falling on such epic scales involving billions of dollars and, you know, the pressures and unexpected obstacles that come up. I mean, and also when else are we going to get a chance to see, you know, Elizabeth Holmes on Larry Ellison's yacht and, and those splashy scenes that that whole story enables. But it's curious. I've, I've seen this, this sort of swell of TV shows like this described as the tech lash and scam season. I'm curious, Richard, what, what your thought is. I mean, I think anytime you get massively wealthy people and scandal in the same story together, I mean, they often are. Uh, it's pretty <laughs> fascinating, especially to people like us who work for Vanity Fair, read Vanity Fair, which, you know, we, we tend to cover that kind of uh you know super one percent uh controversy um and i think that with the tech stuff in particular and you know we work as less of a tech thing and more of a physical space thing but it's aligned in that sort of general ethos is that these things seem to kind of fully present themselves to us already formed you know uber just showed up on your phone one day or you saw elizabeth holmes on the cover of a magazine and you figured well okay i have no idea where that came from or what, what built it 
and you just sort of accept it as reality. But of course, there was a lot of stuff that went that came before that, and a lot of triumph and failure, and in certain cases, uh, bad behavior all the way to criminal behavior. Um, so just getting the backstory of things that I, in my very passive tech way, just kind of accept. You know, if it's on my iPhone, great. Like I, I'm not going to question it. Of course. You know, we'd have ethical questions about some of these services, in particular Uber. But just seeing the nuts and bolts of how these things came to be is fascinating. And then we get the added element of, let's be honest, a little schadenfreude. Oh, exactly. Well put. (laughs) (laughs) So these two shows uh, that we're talking about today, uh, Super Pumped and The Dropout, they are both different in tone and in structure. Um, I think that the noticeable difference between the two is that Super Pumped, while there are some jumps back and forth in time, we really start in Medias Race. I mean, Travis Kalanick, the founder of Uber, has already had the idea. It's already up and running in San Francisco. And this show, which will eventually lead to Travis Kalanick's downfall, his ouster from the company, as delineated in Super Pumped, the book by Mike Isaac, the New York Times reporter. Um, but, you know, Uber, as a general idea, ha- has already been formed before the show starts. Whereas with uh, the dropout, we see Elizabeth Holmes as a high school student, uh, and we're going to follow her all the way through, presumably, uh, the trial that saw her convicted on four counts. Um, so what do you think, Julie, about those differences in approaches? Does one appeal to you more? Did you want to see Travis Kalanick as a high school student as well? I think I'm good, <laughs> but I really <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed Elizabeth Holmes, those um, flashbacks, especially involving the William H. Macy character, which is based on a real life person we'll get into. But he has his own epic backstory. I'm also interested in the different perspectives just coming from a male CEO and a female CEO. It's really interesting to me that Super Pumps gets into this chauvinist sort of toxic work culture that. Of course, Travis was later accused of having, um, and he's mostly surrounded by men, bros at all times, as is the case in most Silicon Valley startups when you get to those higher echelons. And on the flip side, we have Elizabeth Holmes, who is trying to make her way in the world as one of the first tech CEOs of startups at this level. And you see how she has to literally transform herself, be it, you know, lowering her voice or transforming her, her the way she dresses just to be taken more seriously. And you really see it when she's staring down those conference room tables at her VCs, her board, and it's all male members. So it's, it's interesting seeing those different perspectives. And it's also worth noting, I think, that when we crashed premieres um, later this month, we get both the male and the female perspective um, so it's an interesting, interesting sort of study. Yeah, it, 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 it's it's instructive to watch Super Pumped in conversation with the dropout because you see, OK, here's Travis Kalanick, the brash, chauvinistic character that we kind of always assume these startup bros are. And then we see Elizabeth Holmes. She's not a shrinking violet, but she's very ambitious and and forthright about that ambition and yet she's really starting from a family of privilege and in a you know very prestigious university but but has a lot uh, of room to traverse before she gets to sort of Kalanick's level and in so doing has to bypass or work with a lot of men like Kalanick so we're seeing the 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 culture as it existed 
pre-Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, and then her choice to kind of enter into it, which from my perspective feels insane. Like I, I wouldn't, I, nothing about startup culture interests me. And I think Super Pumped really explains in, in, in this first episode, a lot of why the personalities uh, would not jibe with mine, but, and yet Elizabeth Holmes sees something in there. She worships Steve Jobs. I don't know what her feelings about Uber were, but I, I, I guess what I like what the, the dropout does is it kind of makes you understand why someone would want in to the world we see represented, I think somewhat critically and super pumped. Right. No, I think it does a really good job of outlining all the the forces that gave Elizabeth these ambitions, whether it was, you know, the assault on her college campus or, you know, her dreams of following her family's legacy of of these sorts of inventions. She was a descendant of the Fleischmann yeast heir. So there was a family precedence to this sort of innovation. And, you know, she really sincerely seemed like she had a dream to make the world a better place. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as the show goes on, as these three episodes go on, you do start to question that dream a little bit. You're like, okay, I right. know that you did want to help people, but was it really more about, as she says in the first episode um, to uh, Richard Fuse, I want to be a billionaire. And everyone kind of laughs and she's like, I know, I'm, you know, she's serious. You can tell. So there's a monetary interest, but yes, she can kind of wrap that in this. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to make people better. Um, through medical technology, which if anyone has uh, read or listened to John Carreyou's work, uh, he's the one, the Wall Street Journal reporter who first kind of broke the story about the Theranos scandal um, and has done a subsequent couple podcasts about it, is that perhaps Holmes's first mistake was that medical technology versus a rideshare app, that you really cannot fuck around with because that is people's health. There oh. are much different standards for that. There are much different expectations and so that was probably we see in this first episode, she's informed by oh, the needle pricks and Sonny Balwani talking about his father not getting the appropriate tests. It was a good idea, but it was way, way, way too ambitious. Where with Kalanick in this first episode, his biggest hurdle is getting around the fuddy duddies at the taxi commission or whatever it is, you know. So the scale of ambition was was really different. And I think that's what makes Holmes thus far anyway something of a slightly empathetic tra tragic figure but i think that perspective will change whereas kalanick i kind of hate him from the get-go i mean his first line is are you an asshole <laughs> right which we see these earnest maybe beginnings dreams for elizabeth and that was such a good point about the scale because we later see them taking this technology to oncology centers you know with the hopes of maybe helping to heal people in the distant future but then with super pumped it drops us in to one of the most revolting, I guess, decisions made by Uber um, in 2014. And I didn't realize that that whole dollar safe ride fee is very much based on truth. In 2014, there were growing concerns about assaults in the cars. Also, there was a terrible incident during which an Uber driver in San Francisco struck a family fatally um, striking a, the six-year-old child of the family. There was a massive lawsuit and his his reputation started to, to kind of crumble under all these pressures about safety. And in response, we see Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character as Travis, you know, spitballing with his team about how they can reverse this PR image. And the idea, the innovation is this dollar safe ride feed that when the New York Times investigated later, they saw that the dollar was devoted 100% just to profits and 
by 2019, it had collected nearly half a billion dollars for the company, and it was never earmarked specifically for improving safety. And again, like when you're starting a character off with that anecdote, it's it's hard to maybe recover, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I had sort of wondered about the tone of Super Pumped because it's from the people who do billions about the hedge fund assholes in New York and Connecticut. Um, and that show is, you know, wagging a finger at them to some extent, but it it also it wants you to have fun with them. And so I was a little concerned that everything we know about Kalanick and Uber uh, with, you know, the, the value of hindsight, like that's not a positive story, <laughs> not a corporate story, nor a personal story. Um, uh, but uh, so I was nervous that the show might be a little too celebratory of those kind of decisions. I mean, you know, you have Quentin Tarantino narrating some of the episode in a kind of funny voice and, and it's we have title cards and nicknames and all these things flashing on the screen and it, it has a tone familiar to anyone who has watched Billions or seen Adam McKay movies like Vice or The Big Short. Um, but I think in there, and I think that's one of the crucial reasons they start with that scene, is you have to know from the get-go that Super Pumped is condemning of this, I think. And I hope that they can develop that, uh, that, that sort of line of inquiry as the show goes. I mean, do you feel at this point, switching over to the dropout, do you feel empathy with Elizabeth after episode three? I do in terms of her being a female faced, yeah. you know, with a conference room full of men and encountering her this task of being mid 20s and overseeing this billion dollar company so early on. I definitely could not deal with that. But there is I'm trying to figure out what the point is, because there's definitely a turning point where it goes from empathy towards realizing this person is maybe, you know, knowingly. She is knowingly defrauding investors. But I think that comes after after episode three, don't you think? I do. I mean, we see her lie. You know, we see right. her tell the first big lie with the faked test uh, for the, uh, the investors in Switzerland. And we see the ethical concerns of other people in her employ, who some of whom leave the company in anger or disgrace or, you know, some mix of the two. And so it is that, that the portrait of Elizabeth is complicating. And I'm curious to see what Super Pumped does with Kalanick in that sense. Like, I think that Super, uh, that, that uh, the dropout is way more of a character study thus far, whereas Super Pumped is more anatomy of a corporate culture, um, where with Kalanick at the center and Joseph Gordon-Levitt's forceful performance at the center, but Amanda Seyfried, who plays Elizabeth Holmes on the dropout, is really doing, I think, a deeper dive into who that person is. Definitely. I'm also intrigued. Who, which character in Super Pump did you find yourself empathizing with most, if anyone? Well, that's a tricky thing about that, about Super Pump is that, like, I don't think I would like to hang out with any of these people at a party. Right. Um, maybe Elizabeth Shue as Bonnie Kalanick, Travis's mom, although unfortunately Bonnie Kalanick did pass away. But, you know, you you have Austin Geit, uh, played by Carrie Bechet, who is a, one of the lone female employees. She started um, at Uber as an intern and later became a very, very high level executive at the company. And you kind of, you know, in the same way that you empathize with with Holmes entering this very male dominated world. But but, you know, Austin Geit was doing not great things either and was part of that same machine. So that kind of leaves me with, I mean, certainly not the brief glimpse we have of CAA founder Mike Ovitz, I guess maybe Richard Schiff playing Randall Pearson, who's a, a made up character representing the San Francisco Municipal Transport Authority. But then you get to Bill Gurley, 
uh, who is, you know, the head of Benchmark, an investment firm, a venture capital firm. Uh, he's played by Kyle Chandler on the show. And in this episode, he does function something as the voice of not concern exactly, but a sort of paternal guidance, I guess. And in that, he seems to be the most human character on the on the show. He, you know, he calls himself a good guy. Um, I don't know if we should believe him, but I thus far am on his side the most, I think. Do you agree? I agree. Also, there's a character that's kind of in the periphery. Um, Travis's girlfriend. We see her kind of on the periphery, the sidelines, but the character of Gabby Holsworth, and she's played by Bridget Gow Hollett, is interesting because in real life, she was this violinist and business development manager. I think they they switch her career a little bit. But she spent about two years dating Travis. And after they broke up, she was the person who kind of unveiled some of the chauvinism that was happening behind closed doors. She revealed, for example, that um, there was this karaoke. Did you hear about this? Vaguely, but um, yeah, tell me more about it. There was a karaoke incident um, when she went with Travis and some Uber employees to Seoul. They went wound up at some sort of venue offering escort services. And the fact that I described it as such shows that I have never <laughs> been to such a venue. But I guess male employees, they selected women by number to come sit with them. Um, and this was just one of the examples. But she said a year later, one of the females who was present reported the trip to human resources, saying she felt uncomfortable, but it was never addressed. And she also spoke about all these events where it was completely male dominated, save for these beautiful models that were essentially flown in as some sort of favor, party favor. Um, so I think that character has potential. I don't know how much she's going to factor into later episodes, but I'm I'm hoping that she plays more of a role. That was a pretty significant event in that this Uber story, this trip to Seoul. So I would think that we would get there. But if you know, if people uh, listening aren't uh, familiar with a lot of uh, some of Julie's work at VF, um, she's a great delineator of fact versus fiction on TV and in film. You know, you you write really interesting, well-researched pieces about the truth behind blank. You know, uh, and these are two obviously very true life shows, or they're attempting to position themselves as that anyway. From these first installments, the first three of Dropout and the first one of Super Pumped. Do these feel like they are getting the details right to you, Julie? They do. It was interesting for Super Pumped. The one element that I think was more of a fictional flourish was this rivalry rivalry with his brother. At least I could not find that in the book on which the show was based. But in real life, Travis's brother, Corey, is a firefighter um, in Fresno City. But I didn't see anything about that rivalry. Maybe that was put in intended to make audiences sympathize a little bit with him. You know, we see an event that Travis had hoped his brother would show up to and he doesn't. So I'm I'm curious about that. But everything else down to that safety fee seemed pretty much pulled. You know, the, the most important elements of that episode seemed very truthful to me. And then with the dropouts, this same thing, but we have a lot of fun flourishes around the facts. The fact that we get this fun early aughts soundtrack. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of fun moments. And I guess you credit Liz Merriweather, the show's creator, who was responsible for New Girl, for giving giving the show these light comic moments that I don't really see and still pumped at all. 
what I what I think about the 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 light comic touch of the dropout is that it it does in the, especially in the in the first episode in the pilot episode uh, called I'm in a hurry it it does it makes her somewhat relatable. She was just a kid. She was getting all of these signals from the the universe at the turn of the millennium about what was going to be the next thing, what was going to be big, and she's just this jumble of ambition. I mean, she's you know obsessively singing to this song by the band Alabama, I'm in a hurry to get things done, which is, you know, a little on the nose given like what we know of her character, but it really works, you know. Wait, let's just stop there and talk about that dancing sequence one second because it's it's so good. We see the Steve Jobs poster on the wall. Um, And when I looked back at John Carreyou's book, there are anecdotes about people who would arrive at the Theranos parking lot and they would see Elizabeth in her car, like just wildly jamming out to hip hop music. They didn't describe her style of dancing, but I, I really appreciate Amanda's interpretation of what she thought Elizabeth dancing in her bedroom might be like. What did you think? I'm curious what went through your head when you saw that sequence. Well, I always wonder with these things like, okay, is this just invented for effect? Are we trying to make this character, trying to say something about this character that we wouldn't have known in real life? But I think that these early scenes where it's in interior, the interior, you know, adolescent life of Elizabeth Holmes, like, even if there's some fictionalized details, it doesn't sound like this one necessarily was because there's there anecdotal uh, there's anecdotal evidence about her dance you know dancing in her car. I I think it it's important to ground us in the show's reality, and I think what we see over the course of the next few episodes of the dropout is that that energy, embarrassing and a little bit off you know off center as it might be, is infectious. You know you have people. Like Channing Robertson, um, one of Holmes's Stanford professors, he's played by Bill Irwin on the show, who is quite immediately taken by her enthusiasm and her ability to seem sort of guileless, but also on the vanguard of something big. You know, um, I think that's a rare combination in maybe that maybe that maybe Kalanick had earlier in her career. I don't know. We see in subsequent episode Don Lucas, the uh, who was a really prominent venture capitalist um, who had a history with Larry Ellison's Oracle. He's taken by her as well, and so I, I think that her dancing in her room is telling part of that same story that we see later acted out with these adults because they kind of want to draft off that energy, whether that's out of affection or sort of money-minded cynicism or both. I think will be teased out. Which is, and it's also why it's interesting when in the first episode we have these this pair kind of continuous confrontation with Phyllis Gardner, who uh, is played by Laurie Metcalf on the show. She's a physician, a Stanford professor. Uh, she's also worked in founding companies and investing in, in companies, much as many Stanford professors do. Some people think that has become a, a really kind of serious problem at Stanford. Uh, this show, I think, is making that argument uh, in a subtle way, at least in this these first episodes. But Phyllis Gardner was also maybe the first Holmes skeptic. And I think it's really crucial to see all of the appealing parts of Elizabeth Holmes while also taking a, a moment to sober us up and say, no, 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 this is all in service of something that was going to be a terrible catastrophe. Right. It also bears noting I guess that Travis had previous experience in the startup world. He had two previous ventures. The first was a total bust because of Mike Ovitz essentially harpooned it as 
was explained on the episode. Um, the second he managed to sell with a co-founder for about $19 million, he took $2 million of that and moved to San Francisco. Whereas we see Elizabeth drop into this world and it's sort of fish out of water at first. We see her you know, going to construction sites with these VCs and an ill-fitting tank top with her bra strap showing. We see her living like a college student in that office, sleeping in a sleeping bag. That is something I was desperate to figure out. Was her office that much of a mess? And I couldn't find any evidence. I would love to talk to Liz Merriweather about that specifically. Um, my other super quick bullet points, questions I had. The green juice, very much based in fact. Apparently, she just drank the green juice because she thought it enabled her to stay up more hours of the day. She was working like 16 hours a day. So I guess you have to give her credit in that sense. There's even John Carreyou even has the recipe of her green juice in his book. And amazingly, there's no apple or lemon in it to cut it. So I don't know how she did that. Um, I didn't find any evidence that Elizabeth was ever on Larry Ellison's yacht, though I would have loved for that to happen in real life. I love the whole sequence of her and her like Banana Republic suit out there screaming with her life vest on. (laughs) Wasn't that good? Yeah, it was good. I mean, I feel like to know Larry Ellison is to have been on one of his yachts. I don't know if we can know without being on a yacht. I I don't know. I'm just imagining. Uh, But... There was a Chris. I was curious about the Christmas party. There was a Christmas party where she got too drunk, but she, you know, an assistant didn't have to intervene. She called Sonny to pick her up. And I guess that was a first inkling to some of their colleagues that, you know, there she might have been having this romantic relationship. And and I guess the the insertion of that assistant character does a lot in just showing how young Elizabeth is and constantly reminding us of that. I, I kind of enjoy that relationship between the two of them. Yeah, yeah. She's so young and yet has so thoroughly thrown herself into the world of grown-ups, including a clandestine romantic relationship that many people at the company don't know about and didn't know about for a long time. That became a major part of uh, her downfall, essentially, was that she was sort of secretly dating someone who she brought in to be a big wig at the company. And there is, you know, a a certain tragedy in that. I don't know that this show, The Dropout, is framing Balwani as a predator exactly, as someone who saw an opportunity and jumped on it. There seems to be a genuine affection passing through them. Is that a bad read of of what we've seen so far? (laughs) Right. No, it's interesting because in Elizabeth Holmes's actual deposition, she made it seem as though he was sort of some Svengali character who was controlling her in some way. And it is worth noting that when they did first meet in 2002, when she was on that language immersion trip to Beijing, she was 18 and he was 37. So there was almost a 20 year age difference, which does, you know, set a few alarm bells off. So it is interesting to me that there is a little bit of affection shown. And she does eventually, she says she she told her parents about him. I'm not sure. If that's accurate, but I'm curious where they take that relationship. Yeah, I mean, because if if she was 37 and he was 57, you'd be like, okay, that's a big age difference, but they're both fully adults. But like 18, her, you know, just you know, not even in college yet, in a foreign country alone, like she was in a very vulnerable position. But we see later um, in these episodes, I think it's in the third episode where she uh, basically brings him in as COO in exchange for 20 million dollars, like. She is viewing him transactionally as well at a certain point, um, which really complicates matters even more. 
Good read. And despite his scientific training, it boggles my mind that those investors didn't flag that. But I, I guess they trusted her. That boardroom scene is so good when she manages to pivot in that moment and negotiate with them to keep her on. Well, it's 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 because the one of the big questions about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, which was this pie in the sky technology that really would have had it ever worked, completely changed medical the medical profession and human health, probably uh, for the better. But of course, it didn't work. But one of the big questions when this all started to unravel, thanks to John Kerry and other people, was how did this go on for so long? How did she fool people? And I think that the show thus far has done a really good job of showing that on a couple levels. Well, like we talked about her, her enthusiasm was infectious. She was great in that boardroom. You know, basically, she was about to get deposed from her own company and then turned it around into getting more money and opening new offices. Uh Um, And then in a third way, which, you know, I think you could from a certain distance be like, well, why do we have to focus so much on Elizabeth Holmes's aesthetic, her voice, her hair, her clothes? But that was a crucial part in her mind, at least, of how she legitimized herself. And so we see in some senses Elizabeth Holmes in in her own idiosyncratic way trying to ape the the dominant guru uh sort of styling in a way that Travis Kalanick has in a more rumpled way that men get to be, you know. So I think it's really important that the dropout focus, you know, we have the closing shots of her, you know, in the in the black outfit, which would become her uniform. And we have her mother, uh, Noelle, saying, oh, you should get your roots done. Your hair looks better blonde. We, You know, it, 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 those are important to this whole mythos because that was part of how she sold herself in the company. Right. And that makeover was initiated on the show as it was in real life. She had a colleague who a few years in essentially pointed out that Elizabeth that Elizabeth was being compared to Steve Jobs. So she had to look the part. So she found the black turtleneck and black pants. And it also worked out because she was so single focused on work at that point. She didn't want to waste any time figuring out how to style herself each day. Yeah. And and on the style front, we have um, we we meet uh, somewhat briefly Anna Ariola, uh, played by Nikki Andres uh, on the show. And she is a formal Apple designer. Uh, she was, I think, largely credited with the aesthetic design of the iPhone, which is right. pretty significant. Yeah. And then the, it's a great triumph that Elizabeth is able to poach Ariola for uh, Theranos to design the, design the device. And of course, she, Anna later leaves in a huff and, and, and uh, is one of those first people out. But what Anna leaving does, what Edmund Koo does, another scientist leave, who leaves, uh, Rakesh Madhava, once they leave, it frees her up to reinvent herself that much more because we see the people kind of being like, wait, do you have a cold? Are you OK when she's trying out the voice and stuff like that? But once those people are gone, she can then fully become this kind of too literally mimicked version of Steve Jobs. Interesting. In John Carreau's book, he he notes that I guess a colleague they were he and Elizabeth were talking one day and Elizabeth got really excited and suddenly her voice went up like two registers. But even he sort of understood why she would need to do that in the tech sphere to try to get herself taken more seriously. And I think that that uh, that is complemented really well and, and highlighted really well by the comparison to Super Pumped, where it's like all Travis had to do was like talk a little swagger with another guy at, over bourbons, you know, and that was how business was done for him because that was the culture. And Elizabeth has to go through this complete, or she at least she thinks she does this complete overhaul from voice to clothing to 
you know, how she carries herself just to be taken seriously. So there's obviously a stark difference there that, that is not just um, age. Right. I, I want to sidebar for a moment because the character that is based on uh, or that William H. Macy plays Richard Fuse is just a legend of vindictiveness in real life. In John Carew's book, he wrote about how Richard got this patent for some crucial process in Theranos's designs uh, process, essentially screwing her over. He called it the Theranos killer. But there's also this amazing backstory of this rivalry he had with another person in the medical industry who bought out a company of his and then pushed him off the board. So essentially, this Richard guy was in the CIA at some point. He used his resources to gain intel on this enemy. He ended up suing the enemy twice, winning each time. But at the end of one lawsuit, the other guy refused to shake his hand. So like he couldn't live with that. So the guy was on the Yale Board of Trustees. So on graduation day that year, Richard facilitated this protest against this guy being on the board. He passed out thousands of pamphlets against him, and he even hired a plane to try to fly across campus with a sign on the back saying that this person should resign. I just found that really awe-inspiring. <laughs> well, and you that. see William H. Macy in this, you know, he's had his hairline pulled back, and he's very tan and looks very strange, and you're like, oh, this is too outsized. It's too TV. But then you actually look at photos of Richard Fuse and you're like, oh, no, actually, they, they got it pretty right. Right. Fuse is what you could maybe, maybe call a patent troll, which, you know, people who hold all these patents just so they can sue companies. I mean, that's kind of said uh, kind of out loud by uh, Elizabeth to her parents um, because Christian Holmes, Elizabeth's dad, who ironically enough worked at Enron, um, has to go to Richard Hattenhand and ask for money so they can keep their house. So, uh yeah, I'm I'm curious how Richard will will loom over this series. Um in the same way that like when there's this much potential money on the table, uh it's not fast cash exactly, but it you know, it, it, I think they say on super pumped 100x return on investment kind of thing. When that's being dangled in front of a variety of people, a lot of weirdos come out of the woodwork, <laughs> you know, and and a lot of really ruthless people. Um you know, I'm curious, just to switch back to super pumped, we we see in episode one uh, that Bill Gurley brings in Emil Michael, uh, who was something of a tech consultant or is a, a founder in his own right, uh, worked overseas for, for uh, the U.S. government. He, he, had a, he had a lot of um, irons on the fire, let's say. And in this episode, uh, he is greeted suspiciously by Travis, but um, uh, eventually kind of they accept that he's there not as a spy, but to help out. Um, and and the character I think on the show is framed as okay maybe this will be sort of the moral ballast but actually in real life that was not true I believe that Emil Michael was part of the whole soul trip and 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 also had done something involving journalists or attempted to that we'll probably get to later in the series. Oh my goodness! I cannot wait to see where this series takes us. Yeah, I mean, even though we know at least vaguely what happened to Kalanick, what happened to Holmes, uh, I, what I think the pleasure of shows like this when they're done well is is just that that pro sort of process i mean it, it's a little bit like watching a fire festival documentary or the two fire <laughs> festival documentaries you know the, these things are at the basest level they're just kind of thrilling to watch because we know that there's 
they're only heading into the darkness. Truly. And it's the wildest details on both shows have proven to be true. Um, Elizabeth's fascination with Yoda, the fact that she had that slogan painted onto her office headquarters. Um, it's, it's an incredible, incredible work. And, and you know, you, you, you see uh, the character played by Stephen Fry, Ian Gibbons, who was the first the chief scientist at Theranos. You see him walk into the new office with the Yoda thing on the wall, and he's kind of like, what is going on? But And that's the reaction a lot of people have to both of these companies, as we see on these shows. And yet they keep pushing because they know there's so much money to be made, potentially. Or, you know, maybe more so in the Theranos case, they believe in the idea. Um, I don't know that anyone at at uber on super pumped at least their version of things had some moralistic vendetta against taxi cabs <laughs> you know that was just more like this is this is about money but theranos it's a much more complicated thing especially for these scientists who we see over the course of these three episodes get totally disillusioned and yet they have been willing to overlook a lot of holmes's oddities and shortcomings because they trust the general vision i suppose which was their mistake and many others mistake Right. Are we supposed to be rooting for someone in these shows? I don't know. That's kind of the ethical, moral question I have. Uh, anytime you have a show that centers who is kind of the villain, um, I think there's nothing wrong with that. We have plenty of examples of great anti-hero characters, both real and, and fictional. Um, I, I think my general sense, if I can back up a little bit, is, and, and you know, this applies to We Crashed too, uh, which I have seen a little bit of, but we won't talk about again for a couple of weeks. But is that these shows are helpful in aggregate, uh, much like maybe a, 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 an Edison machine would have done had it worked, of diagnosing an ethos that has been become very prevalent in America and, and elsewhere. Um, and it's all about these big dreamers and fast talkers and wheeling dealing and all this stuff. And, and, and so much of, uh, you know, the attention of, reporting on economics and industry and young people flocking west to go to silicon valley like it has informed so much of how we as americans or at least some of us think about success and about what it means to be an innovator uh, or a disruptor um and i don't know in that space if you are supposed to even find a hero exactly i think it's more just like isn't this a strange world that we've built and here are the strange characters within it. And so I think I'm going to withhold moral judgment on anybody uh, until the show kind of makes its case either way. That was such a beautiful point. That was so beautiful when you <laughs> talked about the finger prick of blood and uh, relating. Wow. I just am clapping over here. Well, thank you. Now, do you have $20 million you can invest in my company? That was that was me right. buttering you up for my Perfect. great idea. It's I'm inventing a machine that does podcasting itself. You don't so oh. no, no host needed. You just upload your consciousness in. to the machine and then uh, it'll churn out the podcast. Um well, I think that covers these four episodes. I know it's not, we haven't gone totally in-depth plot-wise, but we had a bunch to cover. But um, Julia, I really appreciate your your fact-checking, your, your giving us the, the backstory on things, because um, when you watch these true life things, it, that's so important to have. So thank you. Are you publishing anything to this effect on VF.com? I'm trying to track down Richard Fuse, oh, good. <laughs> who, okay. who is my own legend here. Um, but I'm right let's, let's just leave it there um but another i did speak to the costume designer of 
the dropout. And it should be noted, just a little trivia note, that the red color is a through line in Amanda's character. You see her wearing the red Christmas sweater. And when she finally gets rid of the red clothes, you see her wear the red lipstick. Um, that's just a little bonus trivia note. But I'm, I'm very excited to see where these shows go, to continue listening to your conversations on Still Watching. And to hear from people listening about their theories, what they're enjoying, what maybe they don't enjoy so much. So I hope we can keep this dialogue going. Well, in the interest of keeping dialogue going, let's uh, cut now to my interview with the creator of The Dropout, Elizabeth Merriweather. Well, I have the pleasure now of being on the line with the creator of The Dropout, Elizabeth Merriweather. Elizabeth, hi. Thanks for being with us. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I, I feel uh, both rattled and a little bit sad by watching these first three episodes of The Dropout. Something that we're we're really talking a lot about so far is what a complicated portrait of a person this is a, a person who we've known sort of publicly as being this villain who's now a convicted felon and all that but but you of course are going back to the source of of her her youth and then beyond um to really find the person behind all the headlines um is that the aspect of this project that attracted you to it i mean this is a little bit not kind of what we are um expect of of your work um it's a bit of a kind of shift um so i'm curious about that decision making why you signed on to this yeah, I mean, I I just finished or was just finishing New Girl, um, which is a very different show than The Dropout. <laughs> um, there's nothing adorable about Elizabeth Holmes, um, but I I just finished uh, the New Girl, and and I was you know really interested in doing something else, and this came up because Searchlight had optioned the podcast, The Dropout, which is this incredible podcast Rebecca Jarvis did. And everyone should listen to it if they're interested in, you know, learning more about uh, the Theranos story. Um, and I, I, they sent me the podcast and I listened to it. I thought it was incredible. I just had this moment where I was like, you know, do we need a limited series? There's been a documentary, there's been all this reporting, there's been a book. And I, I thought that what the podcast did or started to do was to ask those questions of what shaped Elizabeth Holmes. You know, there's this amazing anecdote in the podcast about her as an 11 year old running on a track and she just keeps running, even though all the other runners have finished and everyone's telling her to quit and she just keeps running. And that really stuck with me. And I, I just felt like I wanted to dig deeper into her character and you know all the the characters of all the people involved because i felt like that was something you know i could do as a dramatist that a journalist couldn't do <laughs> you know i i could actually just try to tell the story from an emotional human level um so i yeah that i that was the answer that i came up with of why do we need a limited series about this <laughs> Like because I yeah. felt like like I felt like there was a part of the story that hadn't been told. Yeah, there's all that connective tissue, you know, that we can kind of infer reading, reporting, or listening to a podcast. But um, it's 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 valuable to have it be dramatized in this way. I think. Um, well, you 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 gave yourself a pretty tricky task in that uh, the dropout is a really arresting character study, but it's also a procedural about 
how this scandal, this this lie um, began and then metastasized and then became the, the huge scandal that we, we now know. Yeah. How did you balance the human drama with also having to do all of this careful exposition about how this thing was happening? Um, it was really easy. No, <laughs> it was really hard. <laughs> um, uh, I, I mean, I loved it. I, I, my dad is a journalist and I feel like I have some journalism in my blood and I grew up with just stacks of newspapers around my house all the time. But I, I saw it as like an opportunity to, you know, for the first part of the process, be a reporter and do a lot of research and, you know, interview people and try to give myself crash courses in business and also chemistry and also engineering, <laughs> trying to just like absorb it easy. as yeah. much as I could. Yeah. Um, I'm really, by the way, I'm really looking forward to the, uh, the internet telling me all the things I got wrong about chemistry. <laughs> oh, no. I'm excited about yeah. that. No, um, but I, you know, I tried to just absorb as much research as I could. And then I, there was a point when I decided to just put it aside and really think about the story I wanted to tell and, you know, the, the try to understand the emotional logic of what happened and then return to the actual chronology. And I mean, it's, it's when you're doing a true story, it's just this constant conversation with yourself of like, is, is it worthwhile for me to stick to the, actual facts or is is this a moment when i can kind of walk away from them but for a reason and i i took that really seriously and i tried to you know always if i was going to go away from the facts kind of like do it in a in a thoughtful way and and for a reason um but i my main focus was the human level was like the human story and and so if, I, if there was ever a moment where I was like, do I do more exposition here or do I, you know, try to dig into something about these relationships, I would go towards the relationships um, because there is a lot of reporting about the story. And I think if people want to know more, there's a lot of places they can go and look and and check it out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the balance is really well struck. It 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 it's compelling on both fronts, uh, which is a pretty tricky balancing act. But you've you've pulled it off. Thank you. Um, I, I'm curious. You know, you'd listen to the podcast. I'm sure you'd read other things about Theranos and and Holmes. How did your view on her evolve as you were making the show? Because I'd have to imagine that spending that much time, you know, in a allegorical sense, like it, it kind of does with someone does change how you view them. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, the first time. I learned about Elizabeth Holmes was in Vanity Fair. Um, some amazing reporting, you know, during the uh, during the downfall of the company. Um, but I, I, I mean, I I haven't left this process with some bigger opinion or judgment about her. I really tried to go into it and just keep asking questions. My goal was just, I need to keep asking questions. And then that should translate to the audience so that the audience needs to leave this series asking questions as opposed to, you know, having some big answer provided by the series, you know, <laughs> if that makes, does that make sense? I don't know. I, I, I does, really yeah. didn't, mm -hmm. I really didn't want, um, I didn't feel like it was my job as a storyteller to, 
make a, make a judgment or a diagnosis or, you know, I, I, I really wanted people to take from it, you know, a deeper understanding of the, the conversation, (laughs) the conversations around the story, because I think there are so many for this particular story, there's just so many angles to it. There's, I mean, obviously like she is a big part of it, but the company was around for 12 years. And I mean, for it to last that long, I mean, a lot of people came in and out and a lot of people made decisions around it, around like their involvement in the company. And um, I want to, I really want people to think about all of that as well as her and the decisions that she made. Uh, People, a lot of people know your, your work um, in the past uh, new girl and other things as being comedic. And I think that there is, there is comedy in this show. Um, I'm curious how you made the calculation of like where to put, where to kind of have a little bit of a laugh, not necessarily at Elizabeth, but, and not really with her either, but it, it's a, it's an interesting sort of dynamic that the humor in here. So I'm curious, was that a conscious decision to kind of infuse things with a little bit of lightness here and there? Yeah. I mean, it was a big, I think everybody was a little scared when I got the job because they were like, what is this going to, what is this going to be? Um, and I mean, the tone was a big thing that I, that I thought a lot about. And I mean, I didn't think it would be true to the story, you know, for the show to be just like pitch black, like no, no lightness anywhere. You know, I, I, there's, there's an absurdity to the world of Theranos. There's an absurdity to Silicon Valley that I wanted to embrace, I guess the word (laughs) But I didn't what I didn't want was the show to have jokes in it. Like I didn't want to to write set up punchline jokes that I had been writing for, you know, seven years on New Girl. Um, I, if there is comedy, I wanted it to come out of character and to come out of, you know, something like visual in the background or some just the absurdity of the location or, you know, the extreme stakes of something um, that is a little bit, uh, crazy, you know, I mean, there's a scene in the second episode, a sequence in the second episode where they're in Switzerland trying to get the machine to work before this big presentation for a pharmaceutical company, Novartis. And there, this is, you know, this is a true story, but like, she just kept poking her finger and they kept running more and more tests. And I was just imagining, you know, being in that hotel room with with her and the other employees all night just poking their fingers and <laughs> getting you know like actually drawing blood out of their own bodies trying to make this machine work and i think it's you know that that kind of a that that's the kind of humor that's in it is just the absurdity of the stakes in the situation um and then i made a conscious decision to let the tone develop over the course of the series so i think you'll see in the later episodes, it definitely does get darker um, as the decisions that get made, you know, become more dangerous. Well, yeah, I mean, that's something that we we spoke about uh, on this episode uh, with my colleague is that, you know, there is an air of, of absurdity to this. Uh, the, the idea that any sort of technological thing starts with people just trying shit maybe in a hotel room yeah. or whatever, you know, right. and yet this isn't a phone that doesn't work or an Alexa that's, you know, spying on you. This is medical Medical, stuff. I mean, this is life and death. So 
do you feel like did you were you concerned at all that there was any sort of danger of mythologizing this person who was doing a dangerous thing by giving them a tv show you know like i think there's a lot of conversation about like who sh- whose stories should we be telling this is obviously a fascinating and interesting one to be told but like did any, w- w- did you have any moral sort of questions in your in your mind um when working on the project i mean definitely i think that even just a constant question of like what is the story i'm telling and why and um especially as a woman. I mean, I, I, I remember uh, interviewing a, a woman department head for a job and she asked me point blank. She's like, do we need a story about a female founder, you know, who does this <laughs> out in the world? You know, I guess my, I, the answer that I sort of came up with was just this story is already out in the world and, you know, the legacy of Elizabeth Holmes is already hurting female founders in Silicon Valley. Um, There was an amazing New York times article about how female founders have to, you know, really distance themselves from anything involving Elizabeth Holmes or Theranos. I I think it's useful to look at it, to, to really scrutinize the story. I mean, I think it's really useful to, to think, about the whole scope of it instead of just the the sort of caricature of the the woman in the turtleneck with the deep voice i think it's actually a really useful exercise to to try to fully understand what happened because i think there's a like i said there's just a lot of angles to it there's a lot of layers to it um so i mean i and i don't i actually don't think the show is mythologizing her i think it's doing the opposite i think it's really trying to think about her as a human being, which isn't, you know, which doesn't mean she's a hero or a villain or a victim or anything. Else. It just means she's a human being. And I think that allow that that doesn't allow the audience to distance themselves from her. And it doesn't allow the audience to kind of point and laugh and judge it. It kind of forces the audience to to feel a connection and then to to consider what that means that they feel a connection if that makes any sense it does yeah no i think that um stories like this can be used as a stand-in for a broader problem you know that startup culture is so plagued by you know people just trying to get make a lot of money really fast and cutting corners and doing all that stuff but it's also important to remember that this is a discrete person we're talking about this is not she is not all women in tech she is not all founders not all entrepreneurs um, so to kind of have the the zoomed out aspect of of this story, but also stay up close to to remind us of of the individuality of it. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a much better way of saying it. <laughs> yes, I mean, that, but I mean, it's it. I I think it's a. I think that's a good question to to ask me, and I think it's a it's a good conversation to have. And you know, whenever we decide to tell a story, I think we should you know examine sort of the reasons why we are telling it. Um, and, you know, I had to I had to just ask myself that a lot. So, <laughs> well, from what I've seen, I, I think you, you've, you've pulled it off. Um, I what you know, you mentioned that there is some stuff that is not that you kind of did have to invent for the show. Is, is there anything in these first three episodes that stands out where you really kind of went off of what the podcast had told you or, or the reporting had told you? I'm a, a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not a documentary. I, I think particularly um, the 
relationship between Sunny Balwani and Elizabeth Holmes, I had the least information about. So, I mean, I the, the information that I had was that they met in Beijing when they were both in the language program there and she was 18 and he was in his 30s. And um, I don't, you know, I, I didn't, you don't really know anything beyond that except for they eventually were dating um, secretly. Uh, and then he, you know, joins the company years later. So it's, I was kind of trying to make sense of, you know, (laughs) what was that meeting like in Beijing and what, what brought them together on a romantic level with this huge age difference and they have really different backgrounds. And so I, you know, it's, I made, I, I dramatize that as much as I could, but obviously like I, that's, made up, you know, (laughs) I mean, I don't, I don't know what happened in Beijing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely think, like I said, I felt like my job was not to present the reporting again, but to like, try to put myself in the character's shoes and just imagine what was going on for them emotionally. And I'm, I'm a hundred percent sure that it, I did not get it totally right. <laughs> but I, I feel like well, there was, I, I, that wasn't sort of what I was setting out to do either, though. In your version of things, um, a, a question that I have while watching the show is, is this relationship between Sonny and Elizabeth, is it purely opportunistic, predatory? Is there something genuine there? H- how do you view this peculiar bond that they have? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really, it's a really sort of, strange relationship and and toxic and i think we're actually learning more about it and i think you know when sunny's trial starts this month we'll learn even more about it and sort of learn from his side what how he saw the relationship um and like i said i had the least factual information about it so when i talk about it i'm talking about the characters in my series not you know not the actual people because i don't really know what happened between them but I mean, I, I I do think they had a real the characters in my show have a real bond and that there is a kind of love there. And I think it's just a really, you know, it's a really complicated years long relationship where Elizabeth goes from being 18 and a college student to, you know, being a billionaire. So it, there's just a lot of dynamics there and change and. Um, I think a lot of power dynamics between them, but I don't, I don't think it's fair to kind of say it was completely opportunistic because I actually, they met, you know, at a time when, I mean, they didn't need each other in that way at that time, you know? So I think there was some, another element, another element there. Yeah. I mean, I think you see Elizabeth, especially in the first episode, um, as this young person who's so desperate to be an adult and to be in the adult world. Yeah. And then here is this guy. And to sort of help her skip over adolescence, essentially. Yeah. And he, um, I mean, I thought it would be interesting. It's like, what, like, what would draw, what draws you to an older man when you're that age? And I think especially if you're a really ambitious young woman, I would imagine that, you know, 18 year old men would be a little intimidated or thrown potentially. So I thought it was sort of what I thought was interesting was that like he, he wasn't afraid of her. He wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't think of her as odd. 
Um, and he didn't think that it was funny that she wanted to, to be a billionaire. You know, he, he, he wasn't afraid of that. And he probably wouldn't sing just Justin Timberlake in bed. <laughs> Again, very dramatized. <laughs> yeah. not, not an ac- accurate portrayal. But, you know, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of music, um, did you come up with the Alabama song? No, that, that, that was she her, That was the her favorite song in her in her yearbook. Um, and I found that wow. out and I went and listened to the song and I just was like, oh, my God, like I was the in the lyrics of the song. It was like, this is the whole show in some ways. It's like, you know, I'm in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. And it's I, I really I named the first episode after the song because I just felt like that summed up kind of like her early years with just this desire to go, go, go and 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 to bypass gatekeepers and you know to to just to to move as fast as she possibly could um but yeah yeah that's a gift to just have that there like and music plays i think a big part in the show and i ended up really using it to 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 to, you know help the audience with the time jumps because i i wanted i needed some like quick way to to transport people back to you know, 2009 versus 2015. So I, I tried to like in every episode have a, a little like snippet of the music that was the pop music that was going on at that time. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good sort of slash scary nostalgia trip, you know, because <laughs> yeah. it doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but it kind of was. Yeah. And then, um, then the other, yeah. there was an anecdote in the podcast that I also, that had really stuck with me, which was that Anna Ariola saw Elizabeth in her car one morning before anyone had arrived to work. And she, I think she thought she, nobody could see her, but she was dancing to a hip hop song alone in her car and that just anecdote really stuck with me of, of, okay, that's, that's a version of Elizabeth when nobody's watching. And, you know, is, is that something that she did to kind of express emotion? And so, you know, dancing becomes a big part of the show as well. Um, dancing and music. It's not, it's not all chemistry and engineering, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There are other things involved. Um, the, the the Alabama song um, speaks to, well, I don't know what they wrote the song about, but, you know, in the context of the show, it speaks to ambition and and um, Elizabeth has a scary amount of that, but also a necessary amount. I mean, this is a tough industry. You're also in a tough industry that requires a certain amount of ambition, I would think, in order to get where you've gotten. Do you find that you have points of relation with Elizabeth or your version of Elizabeth in that way? Yeah, I do. I mean, up up to a point. Yeah. I mean, I think like, obviously we have the same first name, um, but she's uh, about my age. Um, and so I, I really understood some of the kind of millennial generational things that are in the show. Um, you know, the, the, the adoration of Apple products and the way that that's kind of changed over time. <laughs> but um I think the biggest thing for me was that I, when New Girl started, I was 29 and I was in this, you know, I was suddenly a manager of hundreds of people and I'd never even worked in television before. Um, so I just uh, had no idea what I was doing and, and I would, you know, have to walk into a lot of rooms with, that were only men and, and 
tell them what to do or sound like I knew what I was talking about. And it was hard and I, you know, made a lot of mistakes. And I think um, that part of the story I really connected to. And I, I felt like, I felt like there hadn't been a version of that story on television that wasn't like the girl boss version of the story or that the, the sort of like, all, all you need to do is get through that door and then everything's great. It, there, I felt like there hadn't been a lot of stories of what it is to actually go through the door and then, and then have power and, and have to grapple with what that means and the responsibility of it and the way that it changes you. Um, so I did feel very connected to that part of the story. Um, and this is an anecdote that I've told before, but <laughs> the first week of new girl, I lost my voice and I, um, I, I went to an ear, nose and throat doctor and they said, have you been drinking a lot of coffee and or trying to sound authoritative? Oh, no. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, both yes to both of those things. But so, I mean, I guess I, I understood at sort of a fundamental level what it means to feel like you have to change yourself to be a leader. And, you know, that was that was a really interesting part of the story that jumped out at me, too. Yeah, I think I watched a documentary or something about TV showrunners. And I was like, Jesus Christ, that's a lot of work and a lot of like in, in so many different directions, you know. Um, and uh, I used to stage manage plays in college and I thought I had a good organizational brain, but I was like, oh, no, I could never do what you what you do. <laughs> um, and I think maybe that's some of what I find so bracing about watching this show is that like, yes, she's lying and yes, she's scrambling and doing all this stuff. But she is also in a very literal way, just trying to keep so much in the air at once, you know, and and we can all relate to that stress to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I I think the, you know, the early days of a startup, it's it kind of feels like I don't I mean, that was definitely my way into what that would feel like was was running a show and just, you know, I did sleep in my office a lot. And so I, I I think there is connections between Silicon Valley and Hollywood and in in the sense of there being no boundaries between work and life. You know, it's like yeah. there's an expectation that, you know, you give everything you have to something, to to a job, you know, and, and the job becomes who you are. And I think that in recent years, that's been um questioned a little bit more and i think that's in a really that's a really good thing because i think that those boundaries are important to not end up in a situation where you know you have a lot of really tired people who never leave work and and start thinking of the ceo as this kind of uh cult figure you know i think that that's um it it makes for a situation where no one has any perspective and nobody can kind of step away and, and actually say, wait, is this the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? <laughs> is this, a, is this right. a mistake? So I think, you know, I definitely experienced that with new girl of just kind of throwing all of myself into it. And, and then, you know, years later, kind of limping, <laughs> limping out of it and being like, you know, who am I anymore? Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I, but obviously like the stakes of what was happening in Theranos are really different than making a TV show, but, um, that was definitely my way into it. 
So we're talking a lot about Elizabeth for obvious reasons. She is the center of this show, but you also have this vast other cast of characters yeah, right? um, played by amazing actors and, and all given thus far really interesting moments to have, um, you know, articulate themselves, I guess. Was there any character in particular as you were writing that you were felt extra invested in or was more fun to write than some of than the others? I mean, there's so I, I, this cast is incredible and I, I think it's because these characters are so fascinating and like the people that come in and out of the company are so fascinating. And I mean, I think like Laurie Metcalf as Phyllis Gardner is, is amazing. And that I was really struck by Phyllis Gardner and Erica Chung as characters. Um, they're these, you know, Erica Chung becomes the whistleblower that brings Theranos down and, um, you know, for me, that question of, well, why do you tell this story about a woman who committed crimes? Part of that answer is that there were, there was a woman who brought her down. (laughs) There was a young woman who, you know, uh, came from no family back, you know, no, no family money or, you know, any kind of, she had no safety net and she was in her young 20, you know, early twenties. And she, uh, this was her first job and she had the courage to be the whistleblower to this company that had been around for 12 years. And I, I've always just moved by Erica Chung's courage. And then, you know, similarly, I think Phyllis Gardner is this really interesting female, you know, uh, this female character represents a kind of older generation of women in the sciences who had to work so hard for everything. And, you know, and, and she just really, really understands what it, what it means, what this scandal means for women in science. So I'm really proud of this sixth episode in the series, which is kind of looking at all three of those women in a sort of next to each other and their stories next to each other. Um, and then I think George Schultz, the <laughs> George Schultz and Tyler Schultz and the whole, you know, Schultz family drama, uh, within this story is really fascinating. And Sam Watterson's performance is, is just, uh, I, I don't, I, he blew me away in the <laughs> show. Like he's, he's just fantastic. And then William H. Macy. Oh my God. The, the, the sort of finally with his natural hair, it's so good to see him just <laughs> as he is in real life. But he plays Richard Fuse. Who's I think a, a he's a character that I don't, I don't think a lot of people know about. Um, but he was Elizabeth Holmes neighbor. Uh, and he, he kind of just for years tried to, to bring the company down. And, um, he's a just kind of fascinating character and like his sort of dogged pursuit of bringing the company down when he knew Elizabeth as a child, I thought was just really fascinating. And like, um, and, and William H. Macy's, you know, incredible incredible on it too i always like i'm like i don't know i like i'm like i just say the word incredible a lot but but they are i mean all these actors are really like they're really i just i i so appreciated i felt like all of them just brought so much complexity to their parts and i I don't know like nobody was nobody was ever judging or you know putting a two-dimensional character on screen like everybody was just it, I don't know. They they brought a lot to these 
characters. Well, uh, you've given us uh, a, a lot of good teases for what's to come in terms of more with Phyllis Gardner and uh, the Schultz family's entrance into the story. Uh, we will be eagerly watching. Um, in the meantime, Elizabeth, thank you so much for talking to us and for writing this show. We're, we're really enjoying it. And uh, there's so much to savor. So we really appreciate the work. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that does it for this week's episode of Still Watching. Uh, thank you for listening. Please, as ever, email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. It's entirely possible. I've already gotten things wrong, so corrections or anything else uh, are always welcome. Uh, Julie, thank you again for being here with us. Uh, until you're back on Still Watching, where can people find you? I am on Twitter at Julie W. Miller. And, of course, writing at vf.com. Uh, this week's episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. Uh, until we meet again, happy investing. 